thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm really excited about what we're going to be covering today, and I will, I will try to restrain myself as best as possible because we're going to get into a little bit today this doctrine of stare decisis. You may have read about it in the newspaper. It's the concept that deals with the precedent of the Supreme Court, how the judicial branch, particularly the Supreme Court, looks at precedent. And I think you're going to find that discussion very enlightening. But as I reviewed last week's podcast, I, I realized there was something that, that I had left out that really needs to be appreciated regarding the constitutional limitation on the federal court's jurisdictional authority, uh, in other words, what it can exercise the judicial power over, namely we talked about cases and controversies. And I discussed last week why neither a judgment nor a holding by a court, particularly the Supreme Court, in an opinion, interpreting the Constitution is a law. I explained why it does not become law for the other branches of the federal government, let alone state governments, that have their own sphere of sovereignty that is independent of the federal government. You see, the states were to be a check and balance upon excessive uses of federal government's limited delegated powers. So let me, let me just explain here what I'm talking about. James Madison, in 1788, wrote the following. The several departments, he's referring, of course, to the federal government. He's referring to the several departments, meaning the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches of the federal government. He says, the several departments being perfectly coordinate, in other words, they're coordinated together, to, to work together in a sort of harmony by the terms of their common commission. In other words, they're all pointed towards really upholding the Constitution and the law of the Constitution, and by nature, therefore, upholding the separation of sovereignties between the federal government and the state governments. And so he continued, Neither of them, it is evident, can pretend to an exclusive or superior right of settling the boundaries between their respective powers. Now let me read that whole sentence without interruption so you've got it in your head here. The several departments being perfectly coordinate by the terms of their common commission, neither of them, it is evident, can pretend to an exclusive or superior right of settling the boundaries between their respective powers. Now, now what was Madison saying, particularly in light of what we discussed last week about the limited nature of where the judicial power which is a specific kind of power, a power to make judgments, strictly make judgments, in cases or controversies, disputes between private parties. 
And what he was saying is the Supreme Court's interpretation of a provision in the Constitution does not eliminate the independence of one of the other two branches of the federal government to decide for themselves what that provision of the Constitution means. In other words, he's saying here, the decision of the Supreme Court interpreting the Constitution applies to the people in the courtroom, but it it doesn't apply to the whole of the executive branch or the whole of the legislative branch, Congress, because they are independent and they are coordinated together to all work toward the same purpose of upholding the Constitution. So if it were true that judicial determinations legally and constitutionally limited how the other two branches could interpret the Constitution, then the judicial branch would be superior to the other two in regard to the Constitution. Madison's statement that one of them does not have, quote, an exclusive or superior right of settling the boundaries between their respective powers is saying that the judicial branch cannot interpret the Constitution and by its interpretation bind Congress or the president to agree with their interpretation. They are of equal and independent branches of government. Now, that word independent, we hear a lot about that today. But notice that it's almost always used in connection with the judiciary, how important it is to maintain the independence of the judicial branch. And it is independent in that neither the president nor the Congress can force the judicial branch to decide a case or controversy a certain way. But it is used today way out of that constitutional context to mean that that the Congress and the president must treat a court's decision as if it were law binding upon their respective offices and upon the whole people of the country or of the state. But that's just not constitutionally true. Even if a majority of Americans today may think that's true. We've been taught to think that's true. What one thinks of the Constitution does does not change what it actually says and what it actually does. And the reason that we treat the court with an independence that implies that somehow its decisions for interpreting the Constitution are law and binding on the executive and the Congress and the states is because we don't understand our own Constitution. We don't understand the nature of the judicial power, as I discussed it last week. And so what I've been saying here about the relationship between the federal courts and its ability to set the boundaries for what the Congress and the executive branch can do is the same with respect to the states. Now, while the states are subject to the U.S. Constitution by virtue of the Supremacy Clause, as we said last week, the Supremacy Clause does not embrace refer to federal court decisions, and for the same reason that Madison gave as to the federal government. The Supremacy Clause does not give one branch of government, here the federal government or the state government, an exclusive or superior right of setting the boundaries between the states and the federal government. The states are as free to interpret the Constitution as would be the executive branch 
and the legislative branch of the federal government. They are always free, the states that is, to enact a law that conflicts with the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution and litigate whether or not that law is constitutional and take the issue back to the Supreme Court. Now, what, what I just said goes back to what I said that Abraham Lincoln said, and while I covered it last week, I believe it bears repeating because we so tend to think that we and our states are captive not only to every exercise of power by Congress or the president, but, but to whatever the Supreme Court would say. And if we don't get over this wrong thinking, then our ability to be governed by the laws we think best serve our interest will be lost. And so again, here's what Lincoln said. Judicial decisions are of greater or less authority as precedents according to circumstances. And you'll recall, if you listened last week, that, for instance, a member of Congress, a member of the executive branch, a member of the state legislature or the state executive branch should look at a decision and say, well, and here again I'm quoting Lincoln, was the decision made by the unanimous concurrence of the judges? Was it a 9-0 decision? Or was it a very narrowly contested 5-4 decision? Was there any apparent partisan bias that led to the result? Was it so far out of line with legal public expectation as to be, in essence, sort of shocking? Like, who would, who, who would have thought that marriage is now between any two people, maybe even three people, for example, with the Supreme Court's decision back in 2015? Lincoln won't to say, or, or is it consistent with the steady practice of the departments throughout our history? In other words, the Supreme Court is saying, well, Congress has always opened with a prayer, and so we're not going to now rule after 200-plus years that Congress can't open with a prayer. And he says, or was the decision uh, based on an assumed set of historical facts which aren't really true? I mean, that was the case in Roe. Uh, the court uh, ignored the fact that persons at the common law were considered to be the unborn. It ignored the fact that the unborn are treated as if they were born for many purposes in the law. It just ignored all of those historical facts as to how the word person would have been understood in the United States Constitution. And so that's why Roe versus Wade was such a shocker to our culture. And he goes on and says, or if the decision of the court today is one that's been considered and affirmed and reaffirmed or over a course of years. So, in other words, if, if we have different panels of nine justices over a long period of time all reaching the same conclusion, well, maybe we should give great weight to and respect that interpretation of the Constitution. But, but he's also saying, but if it lacks any of those things, then the executive branch and the Congress and the states should resist that opinion. If you'll recall, he said that if we allow decisions and policies affecting the whole of the people to be decided in ordinary litigation between private parties in cases or controversies, he said we will have resigned our government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. And that's what we've done. And stare decisis is the means by which the court continues to perpetuate wrongly decided 
Supreme Court cases. Why, for 48 years, it has continued to affirm abortion rights and limit the power of states to protect the life of persons, it's all because of stare decisis. Not because anyone thinks that Roe versus Wade was decided correctly according to the terms of the Constitution and the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. So, so with that as then a brief introduction, let's start on this question of stare decisis, which deals with the role of judicial precedence, which is what Abraham Lincoln was, was talking about. You'll recall from, this, from the situation. To what extent do we give credence to their precedence as some kind of authority. So, what is stare decisis? It abbreviates uh, an ancient maxim at the common law that I won't even try to pronounce, but essentially interpreted literally, it would mean to stand by decisions and not to disturb settled matters. So, in other words, if the court has settled upon this interpretation or this understanding of the law, then we're not going to reverse that understanding of the law for essentially light and transient reasons. And, and that's exactly what Abraham Lincoln was saying. You'll recall one of the things he said, has, has a decision today been one the courts considered multiple times over a period of years and continued to reaffirm? And, and so that's the concept of stare decisis. We've decided something, and we shouldn't disturb settled matters. But, and here's the key, stare decisis does not appear in the Constitution. It is not found in the Bill of Rights. So you may be wondering, well, if it's not in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, why is it considered so important? I mean, why would the Supreme Court think that something that's not in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights would prevent the court from saying its decision in a Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey or its gay marriage decision or Burgerfell versus Hodges is wrong. Why, why would stare decisis, something that's not in the Constitution, keep the court from correcting a, a ruling that is wrong? And the answer is, it doesn't. If stare decisis really prevented the court from reversing a decision and a long-standing principled interpretation of the Constitution, then you know what? We would still have separate but equal. And that would still be allowed in state public schools. Because that's what the court said that the 14th Amendment allowed back in the 1800s. But in Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s, I think it was almost 70 years later, the court said, well, the 14th Amendment does not permit separate but equal. Now, did the language of the 14th Amendment change? between the 1800s and the 1950s? No. So why didn't stare decisis prevent Brown versus Board of Education's decision? Here we had a settled interpretation of the Constitution, been reaffirmed in different contexts for over 70 years, and the court changed its mind. I mean, we wouldn't have gay marriage because in 1972, the Supreme Court said that whether persons other than a man and a woman could marry was only a matter of state law, state jurisdiction said it wasn't even subject to the 14th Amendment. But in 2015, it ignored that precedent and changed its mind and said who could now marry was subject to the 14th Amendment. Did the 14th Amendment change between 1972 and 2015? Do you remember voting on it? I don't. It didn't. 
So why didn't stare decisis prevent gay marriage ruling in 2015? The reality is, my friends, that stare decisis allows the court to continue to uphold bad decisions when it wants to and doesn't stand in the way of their reversing bad decisions when they want to. And, you know, to be honest, uh, Clarence Thomas and a few others have, have been honest enough to say stare decisis applies when we want it to and it doesn't apply when we don't want it to. So what is stare decisis? And what constitutional importance does it really have? Well, first we need to understand that it is a judicial doctrine, meaning that the judicial branch created it as an aid to its decision-making. And again, it's not something in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. So we need to understand then why the doctrine of stare decisis developed. And when we understand that, then we compare the cause for its origination to its relevance and application to the Constitution and the interpretation of the Constitution. So that's what we're going to be delving into next week, is how did this doctrine develop? Why did this doctrine of stare decisis develop? And to what extent, if any, does it even really apply to the interpretation of the United States Constitution? And I hope you'll join me next week as we get into looking at this question of stare decisis and how the court uses it to, in essence, justify its arbitrariness in its decision-making process. And I hope you'll join me for that discussion next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.